0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Three people and you're going to have four weeks do something.
1: (laughs) It started out of pure stubbornness, which is great. Without necessarily meaning to, I think we found this quite interesting niche. No, we did some
2: stuff, and the fact that it's invisible means it works.
0: (laughs) I think art is encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept. That was it, not the time-travelling robot idea that we had. Hello, I'm Sam Fry and this is the Technique podcast, the podcast where we speak to artists about technology. It's currently late March and I'm recording this from my home in South East London and we are just starting to get used to the idea of self-isolation given the coronavirus pandemic. So I just wanted to start this episode by saying that I hope you, whoever you are, wherever you are based, are keeping safe and healthy. Clearly, the coronavirus has disrupted many things, but one thing is certainly doesn't stop is the creation of podcasts. So here, at least, things stay normal. In today's episode, we have a great discussion that my co-host Richard F. Adams had with a British digital artist called Alex May. Alex is an artist and technologist that works with code on a variety of projects. He's well known for his work with video mapping, but as you will hear, the work includes him exploring areas like biology, robotics and interactivity. The conversation is something of a rambly chat, which I think is good to listen to as they speak about Alex's background and the challenges that digital artists face. So here we go. I'll hand over the conversation where we will join Alex explaining how he got drawn into using technology in the arts.
1: It comes from a long interest in programming and when I was eight years old we got the first home computers coming out and I got one I was just like yep I'm just going to do this now. Which one? ZX81. the oh, Sinclair, no, Spectrum, ZX81. Spectrum 48. Oh, I, had that, I had that afterwards. <laughs> that but, had you know, know. Yeah. It was actually broken. It was the one that I got. You had to plug a tape recorder into it so you yeah. could save and load data from, this, from the standard audio cassette tapes. And mine didn't work, and it wouldn't save or load anything. We found out, you know, Sinclair Research, and they were like, there's, there's been this huge demand and we, we can't send you another one for like three months and when you're 8 years old like 3 months is, is like about a year it's an eternity it's isn't it? Inter- yeah. and it was just like you know i can't i can't be without this thing so I, so i kept this broken computer and basically i would type in programs which is this very laborious process and then once i'd finished using it i'd pull the power plug out and it would kill the program and the program was gone and if i wanted to use the program again i'd have to type it in again and you learn to be quite good at programming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you do that enough. I remember so it well. For uh, <laughs> practice, you, you optimise your code quite, <laughs> so you have to type left. I mean, you probably remember, you go down to the newsagent, you buy magazines, and, and they have thousands of lines of code in in the magazine, and you, you sit there and you type it in and you run the things. Yeah, so I was just completely fascinated by that, and I've been programming ever since, and I code everything for all the, uh, the work that I do. So... If you look at my work, it's it's quite different in terms of what types of projects that I do. Lots of robot stuff that I do with Anna. Did uh, you
2: come at this from a programming angle then? Yeah. Cause
1: you So you came from a programming or I, science background. It, no, it's it just technology and not. was yeah. I was. I mean, at the time, my dad was like a, a journalist, and he was getting. These incredible images sent over from America of all the CGI that they were working on, all the sort of um, cutting-edge kind of flight simulator stuff. Yeah, and obviously this this was a massive difference between my my black and white ZX eighty one screenshot and the sort of flight simulator things. And so there was this massive difference, and I was just fascinated with with how you could sort of do this and the processes. And, and obviously now I can do that stuff on my desktop. Do it on your phone, Don't probably. On your phone. Yeah. Um, so this, this sort of democratising of, of technology, I've sort of seen it play out and seen how it's sort of affecting people in society, and that's sort of what I'm really interested in. I'm interested in seeing it from the position of somebody who knows the code, who knows what's going on behind the curtain, and seeing how it has a effect on society and people and how through social networking and through sort of, you know, I don't know, dating apps or whatever, you know, how, how we've had our normal human existence sort of put through technology and has now been sort of uh, as a sort of proxy for it when did you start calling yourself an artist I know, 10 12 years ago I, was, I, I mean everyone was like oh you're really good at programming get a mm. programming job the, all the kind of art stuff i did art a level and it was all weird stuff and i was just a weird kid you know, just, <laughs> you know <laughs> i know it well yeah <laughs> now now i'm just not a kid anymore but you know <laughs> so uh, the other bit has, has not changed so everyone was like, look, don't do this weird art stuff, you know. So it was the first year they did video art. You could, okay. you could put video art in. And I went to town. I, I, I generated everything on computer. I did all the music on the computer. I used uh, video with overlaid computer graphics. I did 3D rendering and 2D animation. I was just absolutely so happy to create this sort of five, six-minute video, put it in, and they hated it. And they absolutely, you know, <laughs> i only got squeeze through the A-level because I, I'd written this like quite good essay on um, on the history of 3D photography I think and basically I was just completely put off it and everyone's like you're a programmer going and earn money so I did I went, I went and worked in web programming and mm. back end stuff and but I was I was working like eight hours a day on on like a nine-to-five sort of job and I would go home and work eight hours on my own stuff and, and it was still sort of going on I spent sort of eight hours asleep on. And eventually it was just like, I'm just not enjoying the limitations of working in a 9-to-5 job in technology. You only get to work with a certain amount of technologies if you suddenly want to go and work with robots. And it's just like, no one's going to let you do that because it makes no commercial sense.
2: You know. Is that where you sort of mentally, if you like, changed state and became an artist?
1: I guess I'll always do. <laughs> that yeah. point where absolutely. you sort of have to admit it to yourself. It was, well, it's it's, it's like of, being an alcoholic in some sense. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a problem, I'm an artist. I started in, in about 2000 when I came across the VJ scene because it was this thing where you could bring technology into clubs and you create this sort of visual thing. It was all real-time, which was really fascinating to me. I could code things during the day. I would write real-time video effects. And then I'd take them to a club and perform with them that night. And they, they rarely crashed, which is, which is good. That's what really got me back into um, working with, with sort of visual stuff and, and real-time technology and, and rekindled that thing. So did that for several years. Didn't really enjoy the club environment as
2: a... Well, I was going to ask you, what was exciting about that? Because I used to go to the heaven techno mm-hmm. thing in, in, in the 90s. and It felt very fresh and exciting, and I guess you were part of that scene in that sense. Yeah. No, not, no, maybe not directly, yeah, but, well, you know, the, yeah, the techno yeah, sure. Tuesday night or whatever it was, I can't remember. It's years ago. But there was a whole raft of people who just suddenly took hold of this technology mm-hmm. and began to play with it. And yeah. I mean, what really sort of
1: got you excited about it? It was taking a high level of technology that was real sort of cutting-edge stuff and, and this sort of very enthusiastic and very supportive group of VJs around the world and taking it into a context which was outside of a sort of geeky technology thing and putting it kind of centre stage. Yeah, it wasn't for a Seagraph after-conference party. No, it was, it was, <laughs> it was for people and, in a club. And you could yeah. do whatever the hell you wanted and you could... Yeah. Not everyone liked it, but you could, you know, you were there, you know, bashing away. What MIDI used to limit keyboards. it most was it the technology or was it the concept? I didn't feel it was limited at all. I mean, I mean, now, I mean, I think I was working at three hundred and twenty by two hundred and forty resolution. Yeah. This was before graphics cards, and, and so it was all. And to get real time stuff, it had to be really low. And I really liked reacting to the music in real time. I've spent years writing all these bits of software which would do real time analysis of, of music. And then send MIDI signals, so I could sort of have extra hands basically and control ah. stuff.
2: I mean, this is the beginning, obviously, of interest in robotics and things. It in was, a sense, yeah. That, well, yeah. that
1: sort of and that that feedback, and then you see how the audience sort of reacts. I mean, I mean, you're sort of removed from it because you're, you're sort of up in the DJ booth. or, or or worse <laughs> yeah it was it was just a really interesting way to sort of interact with people and people would sort of come up and they'd be interested in the technology and they'd be interested in the sort of these ideas and, and you know they get people come up and they they'd have these moments where they'd see something in the in the visuals that they really resonated with them and they would come up oh, love that thing you just dip with the but you you don't notice it you know you're in this flow state of performance and it's,
2: it is a performance isn't
1: it yeah and i used to get in this in this yeah. complete trance like this, as i said it's this flow state thing and i'd be sort of you know on my midi keyboard controlling all the graphics and then people would sort of come up and and they'd refer to something that i did but i don't remember it specifically but it meant a lot to them i mean i have a certain style which which i developed over the years mm. which is this sort of very kind of slow moving multi-layers of Videos and trying to create sort of juxtapositions and abstract meanings, though, so, so they're there to be interpreted. But some hit people really hard, I can't control that. Did you ever take some of that feedback back and try and develop them? It encouraged me to continue on doing the sort of stuff that I was doing, but it was I was trying to sort of develop my own file and my own feel. And I mean, VJ now is a, is a very different world and and people sort of tend to use other people's video clips. and But at the, at the time, people were sort of inventing their own styles. There was a guy who, I think it was called Manny too, who used to just work in black and white. And that was his thing, you know, and then there were other people sort of doing... You know, we are all trying to sort of develop our own sort of feel around I think that. you're still doing live performances, aren't you, occasionally? Yeah, but it's more sort of video mapping because I wanted to get out of the, the club thing because I was putting all this effort and time into into doing these things. And after about an hour, nobody's interested in watching your, no. your carefully honed They're not there to watch things. They're there to dance with people yeah. and, and meet people and get drunk and whatever.
2: But the scene itself has evolved to the point where, obviously, technology, art, etc., has its own life now. At, the, at that point yeah. we're talking about it was very much people like ourselves just experimenting and we'd find venues to do things or whatever but there's now a sort of tradition and there are people who understand it. Mm. So what are the performances like that you're doing now then with things like video mapping? Because that's much more focused, I would say, in, in a technological sense.
1: I mean, to me, it feels very similar to the VJ stuff where I'm sort of trying to create these juxtapositions of things which are pleasing to myself, and, but they're around a theme or, or a sort of idea. But, but the video mapping thing is, is great because you can actually introduce a three-dimensional element and it becomes more of a sort of sculpture. I started working with a sound designer called Martin A. Smith, who, who does these beautiful sort of soundtrack pieces, and, and we just gelled. And we started doing things in, like, Holland Park in London and, and doing these sort of things that you sort of walk through and these sort of soundtracks and video projections. So, and after that, I just, yeah, I didn't do club stuff anymore. I just Because people came to see that work. They weren't going there to just get drunk to
2: me it's kind of the point at which it grew up a little bit it feels that things have matured more and we've now got that tradition of computer art going back you know 50 60 years significant body of work significant artists Mm. different genres within that are starting to clearly emerge you know we talked earlier about you know bio art at a completely new sort of field emerging and similarly here you've got the technology now has got to the point where you can start to actually really properly explore it as a, as a medium rather than, as you say, just piecing together bits of video and, and this, that, you know, the other, live editing, if you like. Yeah, Classic yeah. DJing with video, really. But you've gone much further. Mm. This is just by way of context. I mean, you've gone down the full route now into robotics and things like that. Yeah. One of the things I was sort of obviously reading about on your website was Archaeobot, yes. <laughs> which I was fascinated by because that seems to be something where you've gone now the whole hog down and you've got something that you've built, something that's intelligent in some sense.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that? So fundamentally, it's an underwater robot, which obviously presents a, a multitude of, of complexities in, in its uh, construction. But oh, It has to be uh, waterproof for one. Yeah, and, and <laughs> for long period, you know, because we do these shows they're you know, like two and a half months. It's like, yeah. oh, you want an un- a underwater robot that works for two, two and a half months. OK. <laughs> uh, you know, so certain challenges. <laughs> We're working with Amanda Wilson at, at Imperial College, and they're, they're studying real archaea. They're one of the branches on the tree of life. And for a long time, you know, we kind of thought there was the eukaryotes, which are the, the celled organism with the nucleus in the, in the cell which is us and trees and birds and you know insects and all these things and then there's bacteria but there's also this other branch called archaea which they think is like the oldest life forms there was confusion because they look like bacteria but they're actually genetically far more similar to us wow um, yeah so they're, they're, and they're sort of all around us and...
2: so obviously the initial inference
1: from that would be Oh, there are ancestors Somewhere down Yeah, down right <laughs> down the line, yeah. Some of them are extremophiles, so they live in very, very difficult conditions, like hot deep-sea, hot mm. vents, and they, they sit there and, and they let nutrient-rich water kind of wash over them, and, and they absorb these nutrients, and they just sit there and they're like a little blob. But if anything happens and the nutrients stop, this particular one that we're, we're looking at, it, it grows tails. And they just come out, and they just start spinning. What, like squiggly tails, like
2: yeah. like you'd see on biology pictures,
1: yeah, like long, <laughs> long squiggly, yeah. thin, squiggly tails. And they they come out, and they basically propel this thing. They're not like E. Coli. They can't. They don't sort of go right and go over no, that direction. Yeah. They just kind of go. I'm moving. <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully, they settle somewhere where the the nutrients are... oh, I
2: see. They're you
1: know spreading, and and then. If they find that that thing then
2: they're happy again, the tails fall off. So it's just simply to allow them to move and to propagate effectively.
1: Yeah. And and then they don't keep them afterwards because there's no
2: there's no need. There's no need.
1: In this time at the moment where we're concerned about climate change. Yeah. You know, the seas are getting warmer, the seas are getting more acidic. This is perfect for the archaea. This is like, you know, we we've always got such a human centric view of like it's like save the planet. It's not saving the planet for the planet's sake. Mm. Saving the planet for humans, you know, we can all die off and, and life will continue, you know. And the archaea would be very, very happy because it got brilliant. It's like it's more acidic and hot, and more room, more room. We can uh, multiply, yeah. and, and this is fantastic. So, we were sort of thinking about how archaea is sort of the ideal sort of post climate change life form, and this idea that could we design this, this sort of robot one. With these tails, and, and it's all modelled on, on the latest research that Amanda's doing. So they, they do this uh, cryomicroscopy microscopy where they sort of... Because they're trying to study these tails because basically they're they're incredibly simple motors and that they want to understand them so they can build them. And, and the idea is, is that could you create a thing with these drills on or re- take off the tails, replace it with drill bits, put it inside a human body and it would go and seek out cancer cells and drill into them and kill them. Wow, and this is actually the research they're doing. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, you know, serious, serious stuff. So we, we took this as a sort of conceptual vehicle for, for this sort of post-climate change world. And taking the idea of sort of uploading, you know, could you take your human conscious and, and upload it to this device and it could live on. This could be, you know, what you live on as once the world is no longer capable of sustaining human life.
2: Or it could be what we send to the stars, to other planets. If they're hot and which acidic. like a lot of them, maybe <laughs> I'm thinking of Venus. Yeah. No, but you built this little robot, mm-hmm. it's obviously not as small as a real one. <laughs> How big is it?
1: Our one, it's, it's about I don't know, 14 15 centimeters diameter. Okay, and it sits in tanks in a tank of water. We've you know we've got air bubbling up, so it looks like a sort of deep sea vent and it spins its tails. <laughs> uh, because like, like the real Archaea, yeah. it's, it's not a sort of directed thing. It's, I mean, it's it's obviously in a state of distress because it's got tails. Mm. But that would be a much less interesting artwork if it was just a 3D. No, t- t- tank. <laughs> but it's got this neural network in it and this sort of learning thing, which is a complete over-engineering. of it. it's, it's a conceptual choice rather than a, you know, we're, we're not trying to solve, any kind of problem i mean we would like to take this robot and put it in water like the sea and have it swim and that would you know go swimming so in what
2: way have you over engineered the neural network it doesn't
1: really need one (laughs) (laughs) it's simply that (laughs) because normally when when you have a neural network you you have a bunch of data and you're trying to devise a system which Mm. will solve a particular problem but there isn't a problem it's got a sensor in there and it's, got, it's so it's it's always recording its velocity and and how fast the tail spin and how and what its direction is facing in three dimensions and and how it moves around in three dimensions so it's recording all this data but it's not trying to solve any particular problem because it's not trying to sort of move anywhere in particular and this
2: is why you would want for instance it to go into the sea to see what it
1: did again that's the sort of conceptual thing of sort of putting it into i mean salt water is, is even worse for, it's corrosive yeah i mean it would not know, last yeah. for, for more than a couple of hours probably but yeah no just the idea of sort of putting it into the environment which it was actually sort of designed to
2: it'd be interesting to see if the emergent behavior of it matched yeah, the real things yeah. wouldn't
1: it i mean that's yeah or if we could get loads of them but, you know.
2: Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit then about the neural net side of this, because mm. obviously, as we've discussed, you've come up through primarily initially a technical sort of interesting programming and become used to your creativity through that as your medium. Yeah. But what's happening now, of course, is a massive boom in all things artificial intelligence in my day job. I'm up to my neck in machine learning at the minute just for train timetables. <laughs> 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 But nonetheless, you know, it's it's literally impacting all sorts of processes. But from an artist's point of view, how do you think that is affecting practice of artists, the ones who are using it? You know,
1: these are not new techniques. The way that they do these sort of forward and backward propagation networks and, uh, you know, it's been around for since the 60s, I think, you know. Technology has got to the point where we can realistically crunch these enormous data sets in a quick enough time to actually do something useful which is why we've got this big boom in in this Mm. stuff now and i actually did a course on all this stuff so i could really understand it and actually program it myself and in some ways i found it's one of those technologies where the actual nuts and bolts of the technology is quite boring you can do it on paper it's just a sort of process you go through but the implications of what you can do with it are Really fascinating well, and, I th- I think life-changing. I think I'm thinking
2: about it in terms of you as an artist in the sense that when I went to foundation course, mm. one of the first things I did was learn how to make paint, which was actually mind-blowing. I'd never <laughs> conceived of it as a school kid that paint was made. It was just there.
1: And getting through the process. So but going enjoying. through the
2: process and the mortise and pestle yeah. and grinding the pigments and things. And then, of course, you get into photography and you. one of the beauties of analogue photography is it's chemical paper and you expose to light and this thing is made mm. and in a sense what we're doing with ai and, and things like this around artworks is we are in the process
1: of making the medium would you say no i mean it's with your paint example and with with chemical photography every little thing about that process you can change and that will have a could have a, a potentially very big result mm. There's kind of no part of that process that that couldn't be sort of slightly tweaked. But with machine learning stuff, the actual crunching of the data is just this set process Mm. that just crunches it down and crunches it down to this big matrix that you can multiply the data coming in by, and it's there to solve a problem. It's like if you you limited your paint thing and you say, I want a paint that's this colour red and this consistency and, and has all these properties that's what i want and then you just tried all these random combinations you're like no that's no good oh that one's Uh a bit closer you know we'll work towards down that line but what you end up with is this very specific thing so i think the problem i have with trying to use it for art is is that i like stuff that sort of comes out of the technology i like stuff like in the photographic process where you can sort of play with stuff and so you you do cross-processing where you mix some chemicals you you know so let's see what let's see what comes out of this and what what happens but with machine learning it's, it's the other way around it's it's like you have to define the the answer that you want and then you either go towards that or you don't and that to me seems much more restrictive creatively Lots of artists working using these these networks to produce artworks turned out to sort of have quite a recognizable style you know I mean you get all that style transfer stuff and, which is great because people can then get their hands on this on this technology and do stuff with it but it's very limited or it has a domain in, in which you can operate and as I say there's less about the inner workings of this thing it's kind of you feed a bunch of data in it crunches it, and then you get some some results out. Mm. And as an artist, you feed in weird data, and, and so you get these more creative results. But you're not getting anything different than if you fed in, you know, a scientific data set, or you're you're just seeing it in a different way. And it's that rigidity of the process that I find very difficult personally to work. I'm I'm quite in awe of artists who can do something creative with it because it's, it's just looking at it, just go nope. <laughs> <laughs> you know? but that's fine because i got all these other technologies that I can work No i think i
2: think going even going back to my um, masters degree in the 90s it was 6 months of here's programming here's maths here's physics here's hardware and then 6 months of right you're the artist go off and do something <laughs> with it and i think people achieve different levels of outputs let's say you know because it is difficult it's a struggle It's almost like you've all got the same common tool set, but yet you're expected to provide the diversity that the art world provides. And yet the art world can be anything, as we've known, from biology through to hardcore tech. I don't know whether it's harder or easier these days, in some senses, because you've got so much choice.
1: People see technology as this other thing, that this Mm. other thing has has appeared in the past 40, 50 years or something and the art with technology is somehow this new thing, as, as photography was, as, you know... It's it's just another vein of, of creative process. I like to contextualise mm. it within a much longer mm. process. It's not something that, that I see as, as new. It's all still human creativity. It's, we're all still trying to make sense of the world and ourselves, and, and you know, we haven't evolved so much in the past few hundred years as somebody writes software and and Mm. I choose to release some and I don't choose to release other stuff because I know that some software like I did this video mapping software painting with light and that was designed from the start primarily for me to do my art but I kept meeting all these artists and they kept saying Oh I'd love to do some video mapping, but all the software is really difficult so I wanted to sort of create this software which would be simple for artists to use and and I teach it in a day I you know do these workshops and artists come from all sorts of technical levels and I teach them how to do video mapping in a day they can go and do it there are certain technologies that like Instagram filters or something you know you've got the same Instagram filters as I yeah so we can both apply those Instagram filters before Instagram filters. You'd have to sit there in Photoshop or something, and then um, before that, you'd have to I don't, play with chemicals, actually. Play with chemicals, yeah. all, all yeah. this stuff. But or now, if we've just literally got a, a press, and then you've got a certain look and can adjust that a little bit, but you're democratizing creativity. But the more you democratize it, the more limiting it gets. And pe- most people don't want to spend hours and hours and hours mm. tweaking things, they just want to press a thing, and it goes, Brilliant, show that to my friends, and there's something kind of fun which is brilliant that you can do that. But that's not creative in the same way that, you know, these these other processes that we do are. And you still need to spend time and learn your craft and learn the underlying processes and, and really understand them if you're going to create sort of deep work. And it's interesting, like, being a, a sort of... A person who writes software... I mean, it's very difficult, I think, for a single person or, or a very small team of, of people to write software to the standard that most people expect now. Because distribution-wise, they can just put it on the internet and mm. suddenly the world can download it. But people compare it to Photoshop or, or Word or something. that You know, these things have been around for 25, 30 years now. With teams and teams of people on them. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people have, have honed every little bit of this thing. And to release a piece of software that falls down because you know you don't have all that resource or, or stuff, and then is really difficult. I mean, I, th- I think I've lived through that time when that was possible. I think it's getting less and less possible. Yes. and I think it won't be possible in a sort of generalised way.
2: How do you know when to stop? I'm a competent programmer. I, I not brilliant. But, you know, knowing when to stop and say, that's enough, I, I find that very hard. <laughs>
1: Wouldn't get anything done without a deadline.
2: <laughs> no, but I thought, I thought, that's a valid point, because yeah. actually, you know, the people listening here who aren't programmers, who aren't necessarily technicians mm. or, or whatever. Well, but Same, same for it's, art. Same yeah, for this is the same. It's just, how do you know when to stop? And it's an interesting question artists have. Mm. You know, I was asked about my own work, series of paintings. They're not. They're a series of unfinished statements or questions to me. Because each one's where at the point where I think I've formulated the next set of questions, Mm. rather than answered anything. You know, you're into hardcore competing in a sense. So, do you have the same conception as me as as the notion of questions and stop and review? And
1: there's a few different levels because generally, always, right, software is a software component to all this, Mm. all this stuff, and sometimes a hardware component, and that has to work, and that is a thing that just has to happen it's not an artistic choice you know because we we ship like archaeobot over to china and Mm. it's in an exhibition for two months and we we send them several of these these things because if it stops then you've got a dead installation sitting and i can't just fly out there and so usually when i when i sort of finish a an interactive piece for instance i make sure i've got two weeks to harden it and to to make sure that it's always booted up, and that if there's a power cut, or if there's a cleaner turns off the takes out the plug of the computer, yeah. so the <laughs> hoovering from hard experience, then it's got to recover. So there's that kind of level of stuff which which nobody is ever aware of, and just, it's just a painful part of the process that you know. But then there's there's the bit which does it achieve the artistic aims? I think generally I'm, I'm quite focused on those sort of core thing that I'm trying to do with any particular piece and it achieves that and then and then if there's other bits around it I like work which is quite clear in its intention but I'm not sort of dictating your experience goes back to that sort of VJ experience which was quite formative is that when somebody else sees your work it's not about you telling them here's my work look at my brilliant artwork it's something that triggers in them and it's all their experience and it's all what they 're bringing to it and some people just you know, you know when people do it because they stand there and they 're just looking at it and they're kind of in a trance and you know there's this private thing you' yeah. and you'll probably never know what that is, but it's brilliant I love yeah. I love it when it happens because you know you touch them and you've really reach them and yeah. they're, they're going to carry you they're going to carry your work with them for the rest of their life and that I think is one of the most powerful things about doing art is that you can be part of somebody's psyche for the rest of their life.
2: It's interesting, isn't it? Because somebody said to me uh, a while ago that they felt a lot of computer art was very pretty and very clever, Mm. but didn't make you go, oh, wow.
1: I've had a few.
2: Yeah, no, well, no, no, (laughs) I think think there is some. I think that's my point, that I get that comment totally. Yeah. Because a lot of what you tend to see and often what translates to TV and, and websites for display is pretty but isn't particularly deep or emotional or or whatever and a lot of the more emotional stuff I think you often have to experience to some extent Mm. Do you think we are moving into that play and experience world with this sort of
1: approach to things? I think there's a number of very good digital artists who are incredibly focused on their journeys and producing amazing work and then there's lots and lots of stuff which is quite you know it's, it's such a weird sort of disposable culture I mean I was, I was doing this project at the moment a VR project and it's about digital preservation and I'm creating this artwork which is going to go into the collection of Tunbridge Wells Museum and they commissioned this, this piece and originally we were just going to release it sort of for free and it's, it's a sort of you know 360 video and I was going through Instagram again and and, and if you go through the, the tab which has got just endless scrolling other people's work yeah and I was looking I was going like these are brilliant this is like it's so inventive like, yeah really good and I'm just scrolling past them and I'm not ba- giving them any thought <laughs> and it's because if you make that thing available you you take away a lot of its value scarcity yeah and I've always struggled with that in digital art because it's inherently not
2: but this is back to Walter Benjamin and all, all of that sort yeah. of stuff about reproduction, isn't it? Yeah. The minute you reproduce it, I had this very conversation about my own artwork with some, with a dealer at an mm. exhibition about it. The comment from him was, I could sell this for thousands, mm. except it's digital. And I said, but it's yeah. on canvas in a frame.
1: Yeah.
2: And he, and I've only made one. Yeah. I'm not making any more. And he said, yeah, but you could. And I said, well, I could go in into a gallery and take a high-quality photograph of... Mm a painting, render that to canvas, and you wouldn't know the difference if I was careful. So what's the difference? He said, yeah, but it's just different.
1: Yeah. No, because it's, it's, a, it's a massive leap for people, the idea that we're going from this unique object that has this aura, you know, people yeah. think about this aura of, the, of this object and the unique nature of this thing, to the reproducibility of digital and it's just yeah it drives people i mean
2: warhol exploded, didn't he with the printing yeah. and things and he took his advertising techniques but absolutely. this is a
1: step way beyond that it is but i mean i mean that t- during that warhol didn't he, he got very famous but a lot of the stuff he was doing was kind of just people like the nuts you know, oh yeah
2: well. <laughs> <laughs> no 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 absolutely um,
1: and it's and it's kind of a similar thing and yeah the whole digital art sales world which does uh, it exist <laughs> I can you collected. tell me where it is yeah, I know. <laughs> if I knew I wouldn't tell you <laughs> because it's really scarce and, the, and it, I'm doing a series of photos which you might have seen the, the mm. algorithmic photography which is the first time that I've ever actually done any print work because all the work that i tend to do has been video based or some sort of active element but it was a way of finding a process that encapsulates motion in a still image so it's five minutes of video and then I feed it through the software that I've written that that goes through every frame of the video, it's 25 frames per second, and it takes some or none of the information of every frame and feeds it into a final image, depending on the algorithm. So you get trails of birds flying through the air, and it sort of reveals the motion of the world. And I thought, I said, crack it, I've finally got prints, you know, I can sell them, I'm going to be a millionaire. (laughs) And people really like the images, and I'm really happy with, with what they look like and yeah. how they turn out. And I'm having a hell of a time selling them because they, they're a first-class digital artwork and I could print them out in myriad of forms yeah. and I can sign them or not sign them or do them as limited edition or, or not. Or You could give them to a machine to learn how to do different versions of them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know,
1: and, it, and it, So it's very difficult to see a clear way of Bringing those to market when there's so many traditional artists or, or artists that work with traditional materials, it's not like galleries and curators are, are desperate for an amount of artists. They may all, all be looking for the, the next thing, but, yeah. but they don't need to sort of worry about digital artists because they've got plenty of.
2: No, I mean I tackled you know, the same problem by trying to make all my trauma paintings about look be simulacra of mm. real paintings. And even down to putting pseudo-plastic wood frames with yeah. fake woodworm holes in, you know. Yeah. Frame. But literally...
1: Nice
2: touch. Yeah, well, no, <laughs> I, do you know what? It made them. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really weird that I, I convinced it was right, you know, and I went to the framer and said, I want 30 of these or whatever. And he said, oh, I'm going from China, you know. It's like, you know, classic mm. artist thing of taking it from whatever's available. And put them on and they came to life. And and that's when the concept actually finally gelled. But even then, I get challenged on this same problem from a dealer. It's never been the same in the 30 years I've been working with computers. I mean, it's just people just can't handle it. They'll put it in a show somewhere, but
1: there's nothing else beyond that often. But then I think someone like Banksy, who who has maintained it's a very strange relationship, where you know it's obviously like this big corporation almost is you know that, that's doing these non permanent yeah. works that could be reproduced because they're you know sort of stencil based yeah. and and then he does them on a concrete wall and then people are buying the wall. Yeah, and, but this is know. how
2: they're making them permanent by
1: buying the wall, isn't it? Yeah, but but <laughs> it's because he's so sort of desperate to to sort of buy into that that thing and it, and it's like so he, you know it's a it's a very sort of inventive way of of doing it with digital there just isn't that moment where it's going to sort of flip over I think it would be a gradual thing I think so I mean, as well. I mean you know it's, it's like video art is still not considered it's just coming into its own it's I think it's just, just it's just got that legacy
2: because you know? we've now all got screens and we've got
1: you know well also it's been been from, around long enough yeah, yeah. You know. but
2: there's that place in Germany isn't there the digital art store I forget the name of it that they're it's keeping six versions of each bit of technology in order to display things yeah. alongside it. So there's also that physical redundancy sometimes in digital art yeah. that you end up only with a, a recording of it.
1: Recently I went to Tate's stores and I saw their digital and video thing. And it's this massive big warehouse building all temperature-controlled and you've got all these boxes and they've got all these paintings in and on every box is like, you know, it's Duchamp. And oh. You know, and it's just... It was a very wonderful, strange experience. And then, then you go up to this other room and then in, in this corner, this small corner, there's these those shelves with the with the handles that oh, yeah. roll roll, <laughs> roll back and forth. And that was all of the all of the digital video stuff. <laughs> and there was all these different every kind of media you could possibly imagine, you know, mini discs and pneumatic tapes and all this stuff. But there's so much there, you know. Have you given any thoughts something like ArcadeBot can be archived? I suppose a physical
2: robot can, but the technology itself might decay or degrade. I've sort of
1: been thinking a lot about this. I mean, this VR piece is is really about that and the choices that I made for how I made it, because it's not an interactive thing, because it's a video and I'm giving the museum, I'm giving them all the assets, and I'm using Blender, which is this open-source 3D rendering package. It's been around for 25 years. The challenge was to create a piece that would last for 20 years. So... You could, in theory, re-render out the video at 8K, or as new technology kind of comes along. So I had to sort of limit the choices to match the longevity. So our it uses a particular size of motor, and we could do the spec for it, and, and you know maybe that supplier doesn't do them anymore, but maybe you can cobble something else together. And it's sort of we use a particular 3D printer, and it's like well. Going to get better in the future but maybe you can find a chunky one that sort of I'm, I'm very big on digital preservation I, th- I think it doesn't matter what medium you're working if you go and see the original version of Guernica or amongst the Scream or one of these paintings it's a transcendental experience mm-hmm. that will never ever be matched by seeing it in a book no when you're standing there in front of it it's completely different thing digital is exactly the same lights out.
0: Go. That was Alex May, who is clearly a fantastic artist. You can learn more about Alex and his work by going to alexmayarts.co.uk. There's a portfolio of his work there, which includes work that's been shown at places like Tate Modern, Ars Electronica, the V&A, the Royal Academy of Art, and various other places around the world. He's also on Twitter. On at Alex May Arts. Thanks again for listening to this episode. If you did enjoy it, we always welcome a review on iTunes. If you do give it a five star review, it really helps us go up in the rankings. Also, we are looking at how to record some more of these through the isolation. So if you are an artist that works with technology, or you know of a great artist that you think we should speak to, then get in touch. We are on Twitter too, and we're on at Technique UK. We will, of course, be back again next month. In the meantime, take very good care of yourself. Goodbye. (music) Goodbye. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it-note workshops? More
2: importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where
0: on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more
2: as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking.
0: Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.